Welcome to The Other Coast, a podcast detailing the Malifa meta in Los Angeles. My name is Jeff, and with me here is another SoCal, SoCal player, Colgan. Hey, everyone. Hey, Colgan. So tonight we are going to record kind of a like a conceptual episode, sort of a, a maybe kind of a rambling episode if it's not if our ideas aren't super coherent. But what we're going to try to talk about is this idea of having threats as as part of your list, right? Like having models that that threaten to achieve certain things, whether it's like scoring or killing or or you know kind of ruining your opponent's plan. Just this concept of of how you know models can present a danger to your opponent either in the sense of it's going to help you win the game by scoring more points or it's going to help you win the game by killing enemy models and we want to talk about this kind of in the context of list building but also in gameplay and yeah this might be kind of a nebulous concept but it also you know i do i have seen people talk before about this idea of oh you know you need multiple threats in your list or whatever so even if it's not really clearly defined i do think this is something like a concept that does exist within like the Malifaux zeitgeist. Yeah, I, I guess like the hardest thing is, especially when coming up, is like how do you identify what is a threat, or you know, like how do you assess whether or not you have enough of them on the table? Yeah, generally it can be difficult to figure that out ahead of time. Uh, you generally can figure it out pretty easily uh, during the course of the game if you're getting wiped out or if you're totally steamrolling someone. But I think part of this also is that, you know, this very concept of threats implies that mm-hmm. the other side, of course, the opponent of, of whoever, you know, like if it's your model, I have to recognize that something is a threat, right? So there's an aspect of, of perception to this to where even if you think a model of yours is a threat, if I don't recognize it as a threat, you know, is it really a threat? Right. I, I guess to try and ground it a little bit more. Um, when you're making a list, like how do you decide like this is enough of a damage threat or this is enough of a scoring threat? Do you have any kind of like shorthand or do you have like some kind of minimum threshold you usually try to meet? Right. So, okay, that's a good question. And and I think I'm going to answer it first by, I guess, laying out maybe some parameters. So in this episode, spoiler alert to anyone who doesn't know the process, we have a little outline that we've done ahead of time. So, you know, it's not like all these brilliant ideas are, are coming up to just on top of our heads. But we have kind of divided this into kind of like pregame list building threats. Like, you know, you're building your list. What should you include to ensure that you have enough threats in your list? And then of course, you know, during the game, you know, what are threats then? How to how to assess, you know, threat assessment, how to get the most out of your own models and, and stuff like that. And and so Kogan, in so to answer your question, yeah. So I think when I'm building my list, I am looking to include a minimum of three of three threats and and by threats i tend to default to combat models i don't know if that's because that's just how i interact with malifo or if it's because that's kind of the most apparent or maybe it's because i do a lot of demo games or a lot of play- games with newer players where combat's kind of the um i don't want to say the most exciting part but but the easiest way to sort of teach the mechanics and and to kind of get people their reps in but you know to kind of remove combat necessarily when i'm building my list and and i'm thinking of like oh well, which models are going to be the threats I think of threats as anything which can advance my own goals and negatively impact my opponent, and my opponent is likely to recognize that those models are going to be significantly advancing those goals. So, you know, kind of to to backtrack and, and, you know, at the risk of repeating myself a little bit, I tend to really want to make sure that I have at least three major threats. And I can always count on my master as being a major threat because the masters are just powerful models generally if if your master is able to do whatever they want to do unopposed that's a good thing for your game i generally want a a strong combat model frequently at least two and then i generally want a third model that is known to have capabilities that are extremely potent so either the hucksters would be a good example here like something that can that, that's known to have like a really good mobility and and scheming capacity mm-hmm. uh, the hodgepodge emissary for instance you, you know it's known that this is a support model that's going to be adding a lot of value to my crew and also has the scoring potential because you know a weary road or whatever a lot of times i'm really looking at two combat threats and one like really good scoring or like support that incorporates scoring type threat mm-hmm. 
that's kind of how I look at it. What about you? Um, I actually had a few questions, I guess, before I go into it. So I kind of understand your first two points, right? When you're looking for something that can, I guess, either score you a lot of points or deny the opponent a lot of points. But for the third criteria where your opponent has to recognize it as a threat, I guess I'm wondering what you mean. Because for me, if I have a threat and my opponent doesn't correctly recognize and react to it, that usually means I can just run wild with it. So to me, it's not really important if my opponent can correctly identify what's going to be killing all their things or scoring all my points. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. I think the reason why I, I consider you know my opponent's knowledge to be part of this is it on the board, right? If I if I make a move with something and my opponent has really no concept of of what my model does and like let's say they're really new to Malifaux, right? So their mm-hmm. their model knowledge is is pretty rudimentary, which you know is to be expected for for a newer player. So you you know it's not in any way a criticism or, or whatever, but they may respond to the model's presence mm-hmm. just because oh something is there. Um, but they have no idea what it is. And so you know, against a more experienced player, for instance, you might hear something like, oh, well, uh, what's what's like Model X's threat range, right? And they're going to move in such a way as like kind of skirt it. And and so just the mere fact that that model has, has the ability to impact the board and my opponent understands that ability, that impacts how my opponent plays. But if my opponent doesn't have that knowledge and doesn't like really care one way or the other, it's not going to impact their play. Okay, okay, okay. So it, I guess this is kind of like the mind gamey aspect of it, where you can actually, where I guess like the distraction carnifex kind of thing, where you can use this potential threat to, I guess, manipulate the opponent to some suboptimal plays. I suppose that's part of it, definitely. But you know, aside from manipulation, I think you know if you lo- watch a lot of games on Vassal, which I do, right? Many games, definitely not all games, but many games follow this pattern where both sides are, you know, it's like turn one. Both sides are playing a little bit cagey because they know if they expose themselves and then they get pounced on, you know, they can lose a model for for no value. And and that could very well, between two two well-matched players, that could be enough to just lose the entire game, hmm. right? Like, you still have to play it out. It is possible to come back. But sometimes you've made a mistake, uh, you get a model deleted, and now you're, you know, you're going to grind, you're going to battle, but you really know, okay, well, I've lost this game 6-4 or whatever, right? Hmm. Like... It is possible, you know, because of the way Malfoy works, it is possible sometimes to be that sure of what an outcome is, is, is likely to look like. And that sort of like cagey maneuvering to get the to get the kind of safe first hit, like first devastating hit in, that is a dynamic that really only exists if both players are cognizant of the threat that the other players' models represent. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, or in the alternative, if you're scared of everything, then I guess, you know, even without model knowledge, uh, that dynamic may still exist. But in my experience, as a beginner myself, when, when I'm a beginner, a new player, and also, you know, someone who does a lot of demos and watches a lot of newer players play games, mm-hmm. most newer players, I think, you know, yeah, I don't mean ignorance in a negative sense, right? But Ignorance tends to mean, can like reduce the amount that they worry about something rather than increase it. Right. So then they end up in a very weak position without really realizing what's happening. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think the way I look at threats is probably similar to yours. I'd imagine our biggest differences is how much weight we put on, I guess, where we put our points in our crews, <laughs> since we do have very different play styles. When I'm building, especially if I don't know the enemy crew pretty well, I mean, you know, I'm the same. I think you have to have this, right? You can't really build, or I think it's very difficult to try and build like a competent or a a strong list without really understanding what your threats are and what they're going to be trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like the the biggest part of it is, you know, when I'm building a list, I always want to make sure there's a bit of flexibility. I guess this is also where model knowledge comes in, right? The better I know the enemy master and the keyword and a lot of times the player as well, I can kind of tailor my list more so I don't have to build as flexibly. So I can kind of like focus down and just kind of maximize on a few strategies or points I'm trying to get on the board. Mm -hmm. But in general, you know, like I'll build my list. I try to have a little bit of flexibility so that when I see the opponent's list, I can start mentally checking off like what 
the role of each of my models in the game is going to be. Like I started off with a big idea, like, you know, these are my offensive threats. They're there to basically take out scheme runners or kill anything that's going to, I guess, threaten my scheme runners or scoring, you know, or the guys that I'm hoping to like scheme or like pick up symbols for symbols of authority or something like that. Like I need to have something uh, sufficient enough to draw my opponent's attention. But when I see their list, that changes like, what is it actually going to target? Is it going to focus more as like an assassin or is it going to be a tar pit just to make it so that I guess over the course of the game, it becomes really action inefficient for my opponent to even attempt to try and stop more of my mobile threats or mobile scheme runners. Right. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like part of this goes to, and we've said this before in other episodes, when you hire a model, you should have a reason why you're bringing that model in. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, for instance, if, if you're hiring, say, Fuhatsu, right? I mean, Fuhatsu is a fantastic, fantastic model. If you've hired him without a specific idea, it's not like he's any less effective. Uh, you know, his, his stats don't get worse or, or anything like that. But, you know, to, to my mind, the superior move is to hire Fuhatsu thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm bringing Fuhatsu in to, to build in some, some range damage threat. You know, if the scheme pool uh, includes, say, like claim jump or something, he might be a good model for that because he has laugh off and and you know built in heal and armor and, and whatever else. But it's just understanding why you're hiring a model, in my opinion, can can really only be advantageous. But at the same time, models, every model in the game, can present a scoring threat. Like even models that literally cannot be damage threats because they can't do damage. There are you know. It's a minority of models, but there are some models that just absolutely cannot do damage. Unless they're insignificant, they're still scoring threats. So even if you brought a model in for one reason, it might become another reason during gameplay, and that's perfectly fine. And there are, I think, models that by virtue of of kind of what they, you know, what they have on their card, they are sort of dual threat. They're both scoring and uh, damage threats, killing threats. The riders in particular would be a really good example of this. You know, the shadow emissary, anything that has really high mobility, but also, you know, pretty strong damage output uh, is going to be in, in both these categories. And also, I think a model's categories can shift based on the strategy and scheme pool. If you have strategies that are based on killing, you know, like in previous GGs, uh, Reckoning or Public Enemies, to a certain extent, Turf War in, in the current strategy pool, vendetta as a, as a scheme you know so a model's roles are partly dependent on what the model does and partly dependent on what the the pool is but no matter what the model can do otherwise it can almost certainly you know again except for insignificant ones be scoring threats also and i do think that that's a really useful thing to keep in the back of your head but just to kind of recap this this sort of what do we mean by threat for the the pre-list sequence i try to build in three threats, my master and two other like serious models that my opponent looks at and goes like, if these models are allowed to perform well, the game is going to be much more difficult. And if I can remove or control one of both of these models, the game is going to be much easier for me. Okay. So I, I guess flipping that around, you know, once you reveal both lists and you look at your opponents and you've identified their threats, when you're talking about being able to control or nullify them, are there like, I guess, are there certain auxiliary things like outside of your three main threats that you're, or like, I guess, archetypes that you're always taking, just thinking like, okay, these guys are going to disable their offensive threats? Or is that really more of a model knowledge and like master keyword knowledge thing? Uh, well, so unfortunately, I would say. The model knowledge is a baseline because if you don't know what your opponent's models do, it's very hard for you to, well, first of all, during your own list building, it's very hard for you to have built a list to counter because you don't know what your opponent does. <laughs> so if you do have like counter pieces, it might be because your models, like those are models you're taking anyways, or just like because of dumb luck or whatever, <laughs> right? Like if you are playing a Hoffman and you don't bring any armor, or you know any any um like irreducible or or like anybody to ignore armor it's going to be harder for you to take out hoffman models generally speaking but if you if your models just happen you know if your keyword happens to include a bunch of irreducible damage coincidentally uh congratulations you built in some counters right but <laughs> i would say model at, at, at the point where you like model knowledge should be necessary basically for everything that we talked about here right. and we've talked 
so many times about how improving model knowledge is like one of the mo most effective ways to improve your skill, especially as a newer player. It's like one of the best returns on your time investment. You know, we've revealed our list to each other. You know, another option that you have, like, for instance, to try to maybe mitigate some of your opponent's threats or to try to address your opponent's threats comes like right off in de picking deployment zones and, and you know, in, in picking the order that your opponent has to deploy things in. If you're, you know, for instance, if you're the defender and you get to pick which half of your opponent's crew that they deploy first. But again, things like what deployment zone is bad for my opponent and what what models do I want to see for my opponent first? That all is based on model knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the takeaway is if you don't have any model knowledge of what your opponent does, it's the first time you've ever seen them. You didn't really flip through their crew, you know, before the game or whatever, or you did and, you know, you didn't retain much of it or, or whatever. There might not be like the greatest sense of, or it's, it's very difficult to evaluate how your models did as threats, I think, because you just really have no baseline expectations for what they should have done against your opponent's crew. Right. Okay, so then I guess for newer players or someone's having trouble, I guess, figuring out how to identify threats, I, I guess maybe one thing would be if when you see your opponent's list, if you're not really sure what's threatening, then that might mean that you just need to read up on that keyword or, you know, talk to your opponent because hopefully they're human and capable of communication. <laughs> if you have any questions about their abilities, I guess with the app, you can flip through and try and gain an understanding of that. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it kind of makes sense that without understanding the models and their actual potential, you're going to have a very difficult time really figuring out how you can stop them or even what's worth stopping. Right. I guess, you know, by way of practical advice, if you do, you know, if you are newer or, you know, like really casual, it's a, it's a long time in between when you play Malifaux and, and it's just not really worth your time to like, you know, studying models, right? I mean, I, I, I get that. Mm -hmm. Then maybe what you want to do at that point is really to lean into your own model roles as heavily as you can. And then, you know, try to respond to how your opponent is reacting to your own move without worrying so much about what your opponent is doing. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that, right? But it's like, Presumably, you have better knowledge of your own models than your opponent's models. Even if you know nothing about your opponent's models, hopefully you know <laughs> something about your own, right? Right. So just if you can use those models, you know, your own models effectively, that's probably going to be enough to keep the game competitive and give you a chance to win or, you know, to give you the win. Right. I was just all hearing like, all right, so if you want to learn about threat assessment, just ignore your opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I think at this point, you're not really learning about threat assessment, but you, I do think it's the best way to operate in an environment where you don't know what your opponent's models do and you don't, you know, for whatever reason, you're not really interested in, in finding out. Hmm. So then I, I guess like the next part. So I, I feel like we've kind of covered the starter game and the list. And you were mentioning earlier how during the course of the game, the potential threat of a model, or I guess how you're going to use them will shift rapidly. So I guess, how do you identify that mid-game? Like, when do you know that this model you took in for, like, scoring or killing is going to be better served with some other function? Sure. So I'm going to take your question as meaning, um, you know, that we're looking at our own crew, which, I mean, is what you asked, but I don't want to get into, like, responding to enemy threats right. with, with this answer. So, you, you know, I don't want... Don't you think, oh, we didn't mention the enemy at all. That must not matter, right? It's just dumb. <laughs> While you're playing the game, you know, your goal, obviously, is to score more points than your opponent. I mean, I know that sounds, you know, kind of trite, but that is the goal. Um, and the thing is about Malfus, there's many different ways to achieve that. You know, you can, you can have a, a sort of fighting attritional crew that's trying to keep uh, you know, maybe you don't have a ton of mobility because mobility is very important in scoring in, in the current schemes and strategies in Malifaux, both mobility and action efficiency. There's several schemes that require a lot of actions to complete. So like spread them out, break through, outflank, you know, all these things, they require a lot of actions to complete. And if you have a slower crew and a maybe more combat-oriented crew or a less efficient crew in, in terms of action efficiency you're probably looking at wanting to keep a, a, a slower, you know, a slower paced, lower scoring game. And conversely, you know, if you're more high mobility, if, if, if you're not really looking to 
remove models from the board. You're probably looking for a game that's, you know, higher scoring and more spread out and less fighting, obviously, right? So all that's a long-winded way of saying before the game even started, you should have a sense of what kind of game you need the game to be in order to win. And that goes like from every stage, from crew building, from scheme selection, right? If you are picking schemes that you think you can only score one point from, you're thinking in your mind that your ceiling is is going to be lower in terms of the maximum number of victory points you can score. Uh, and that means you have to keep your opponent below that ceiling in order to win the game. So all of that, I know that that is outside the scope of what you asked, but I thought it was important to to talk about that sort of pregame aspect so that you have a sense. Now in the game, this is the other coast, it depends. <laughs> um, and so much of it is like, what is the situation on the board? But I think it's just all about now that we're at the game, what was your plan pregame? And what can you do to to like really hold to that plan? And then also, when when is it time to cut from the plan? It, it, is it obvious that, you know what, what you were trying to do isn't working for whatever reason, either because your plan wasn't sound or, you know, there was bad luck or there was, you know, your opponent did something you didn't expect or whatever. You know, when is it time to change it up? And this is when we said... Almost every model game is a scoring threat. Mm -hmm. I very frequently see people hire the writers, right? The writers are 11 points. The writers are all very dangerous models. I frequently see people having to use them to score points. And hey, writer, if a score, writer scores two or three points for you, you know, that's 100%, you know, you're getting great value from them. But I've also seen people kind of reduce to using the writer to do something that really a different model in their crew should have done. Mm -hmm. But the situation didn't unfold that way for, for whatever reason, right? And if you need to do that with your writer to score your points, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But in my mind, that's often an example of, you know, the player maybe not realizing at an earlier stage what they needed to be achieving with, with the models they brought for specific purposes. So I guess, you know, it's easy when you're playing games and flipping cards and stuff is happening to forget what the plan was. Mm -hmm. But just like we said, when you hire a model, you should have a reason for hiring that model. You should, when you're playing the game, that you know that model is probably going to be performing best when it is doing the kinds of things that you you hired it to do, and probably it's going to be less efficient or maybe even like dare I say like worthless, you know, quote unquote, if it's if you're trying to use it in other ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, now you play a summoner, right? I mean, I know you play you play several models, but you you play quite a few Asami games. As a summoner, maybe you could talk about how the ability to like hire in—I mean, not hire, sorry—add through summoning models in sort of a custom way. Like, how does that impact maybe um, how you build in lists? Like, how you build threats at a list building stage? How does that really like affect how you use models in the game? Like, what is that capability? mean to you when you when you play a summoner i feel like when i play summoners when i do list building my list i generally build in more scheme runners just with all the changes in gg2 making it i guess a lot more tricky to score with summoned units especially if you're trying to get strat points and things like that mm -hmm. and i guess this idea of like having threats also factors into that, right? Because if I summon a scheming model, my opponent immediately knows like they're not going to be able to score anything this turn. They're mm -hmm. never going to be able to act, re or interact with any strategy points. So it immediately reduces like the number of the number of possibilities that I could be using that model for. Whereas if I do, ha if I just hire in a scheme, you know, these scheme runners, these high mobility models, like I really like Tengu, but you know they can drop multiple ski markers a turn they just have enough mobility and they can fly that i can get them to pretty much anywhere i need them to be and they're always a potential scoring threat so generally i reserve summoning for especially in terms of asami with how our summoning um, mechanic is mm -hmm. with how every turn they gain a flicker so eventually these summoner uh any model she summons in are dying within like one to two turns, depending on how aggressive I'm using them. But mm -hmm. they all come in on a timer on like other summoners. So I generally use them. I use Asami and anything she summons to kind of like tar pit or remove anything I need on the board with Asami being able to 
pretty much place once a turn with her charge and her abilities and being able to summon six inches away. And then that summon model getting like a full turn to move and charge something. She has a really big threat range. So most of the time I'm um, spreading out my scheme runners to threaten a lot of points on the board. And then just having Asami kind of pilot these little explosive obsidian Oni missiles (laughs) to deal with anything trying to stop my Tengu from flying around and dropping scheme markers. Uh huh. I mean, you may have answered this in you know the explanation you just gave, but just maybe to be to be clear or or, or to help me understand, how frequently is it that you are you know you've hired in models for one role? Like, oh, okay, I hire in a bunch of scoring models, and I'm going to summon in my my damage threats or whatever. Mm-hmm. How how frequently is that the dynamic versus oh, this is a state in the game. This is what I need to summon. Like, I need a fighter right now, or I need a score next turn or, or whatever. So that's when I'm going to summon now. Like, do, do you tend to, like, already from your list, do you tend to forecast what you expect to summon in the game? Or is what you summon in the game, like, based on the situation on the board more frequently? Like, reactively, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, it's generally more reactive because. You know, going into the game, before I completely see my opponent's list, all I can really, you know, the only information I'm really sure of is how I'm going to play the match, right? Of course, who I see the enemy master is, what I expect their list to be will change a bit on that. Um, But I guess with the nature of summoning and not always being, you know, I'm not always going to make sure I have the right cards in hand or a high enough thing to summon the potential threat I need. Mm -hmm. Generally, I'm hiring in, like, everything i know i'm going to need and the summoning there is to kind of fill the gaps i'm not always going to be able to cover every base so when i do i'll usually err on i guess reducing my offensive potential to make sure i can keep in like those scoring and scheming threats got it all right so why don't we transition to talk about enemy threat sort of how you are supposed to assess what your opponent's model's can do and you know maybe will do and at the start it might be useful to uh bring up a concept that we talked about in a long previous episode i, I don't even know what episode <laughs> but you know, one of the ones we start, did at the start where we talked about how models like unactivated models have kind of like this potential energy right that that's how we described it in in you know really oh, yeah 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 like how <laughs> you know how how you were how, how you taught physics in in high school right like it's just uh you know, if, if you hold something in your hand, it, it has potential energy. And if you let go of it, that potential energy gets converted uh, into kinetic energy by, by gravity when it hits the ground. And then once it hits the ground, it just is lying there, right? Mm-hmm. And it can't do anything until something else acts on it. And within Malifaux terms, it's like how unactivated models have this potential energy and activated models, for the most part, right? There are some exceptions, but for the most part, just kind of lie there and, and you can sort of disregard them as, as threats. Mm-hmm. So you know, my point in, in raising this was, again, to emphasize that you want to be thinking about what your opponent's models can do. And part of what like an opponent's model can do is whether or not they've activated that. <laughs> um, so that is like an important part of the assessment that I just, I don't think we need to discuss a bunch, but I didn't want to skip over. So you know, I wanted to, kind of explain the way like by analogy to chess like like this concept of threats because this is really the context of how i was thinking about it when when we were talking about this episode you know when i was learning how to play chess uh my dad he like just drilled into my mind you know the fact that every time your opponent moves ask yourself what is their threat you know when they move this piece what have they achieved what are they threatening to achieve next move and and not just with the piece that they that they moved right it's but also like by moving that piece, did it uncover any anything else? Did it, it does another piece now have options that it didn't have before? Which one of my own pieces are are in danger? You know, what is my opponent's bigger plan? What is what is their plan not just next move, but in two moves and five moves? You know, and, and ultimately I was a pretty mediocre chess player. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I wasn't really able to progress that far down that ladder. Um, but, but the point is like, you know, that is the goal, right? So Colgan, when your opponent moves, you know, activates a model and, and does something, are, are you thinking about what are they trying to do? Or, or is it generally pretty obvious to you what, what, what your opponent's goals are? I think for me, because I, I have okay model knowledge, I wouldn't say it's great. 
Mm -hmm. I generally try and focus on what I'm trying to do. So Mm -hmm. when I'm keeping tabs on enemy model activations, it's more about what can it do to affect my plans, right? I I remember, you know, I was, I don't remember what I was talking about with, but (laughs) (laughs) but it was this idea, you know, that, um, you know, I hire a lot of scheming models and when I hire in really specialized models, like their plan is more or less set once I put them down on deployment. Like I know what they're going to do. I know where they need to move and I know where I want them to be by a certain turn. Mm-hmm. Right. And so obviously the factor I can't account for is where my opponent is going to place their guys and where they're going to try and like deny me points. So there'll be a lot of times where it's like, okay, I know I need to move my scheme runner here because I need to drop these points and I need to secure them because after I get these points, like it's going to get to a place where I can't really forecast my opponent's moves as cleanly because there's just going to be too many points on the board where I really want to activate before my opponent. Mm-hmm. So we more like looking at the area and if they move like their damage threat or something that could, you know, like remove my ski markers, I'm really just waiting to see like, has that model activated? And once they've activated, I know that I'm able to safely activate models on that board. I, I mean, it sounds pretty simple, but it ends up chaining a lot, especially once you get into later turns, right? Because you know, you're get constantly getting closer to your opponent just because most of your points that you're going to need to score are going to involve their models or be on their side of the board. Right. So as your models start to converge, like where I need to move, move first or where I need to move before my opponent changes really rapidly. And it's always going to be kind of reaction to where are they using their energy? Where are they expending their going? God damn it. I forget the term, like potential energy to like, kinetic kinetic energy yeah yeah i mean it's it in most cases it's it's gonna be kinetic and at least for you know our purposes (laughs) right so like even though it's easy to say it's like okay after they activated their model like now i can do whatever i want but you know if they have three models somewhere and i have like two models somewhere you know the math changes really rapidly because even if they've activated one of those models they still have two models over there that can kill my scheme runners or basically interrupt my plans. So then it starts becoming kind of a trade-off. And I feel like this becomes like, you know, a lot more interesting when both players know the other crews really well. Mm-hmm. Where you're really trading off advantages in different parts of the board to try and like, I guess, maximize your potential for winning, right? Because right. there'll be places where I like I need to go and the number of activations I can burn before I have to move that model is like rapidly diminishing. And I know that once I move that model, I played my hand, my opponent knows what to do. And if I play it too early, then all of my other plans will just start falling apart because I've lost the initiative where I needed it. And now my opponent no longer needs to react and they can instead prioritize other places that are, I guess, more up for grabs. And basically, the more places you're able to take um, the initiative or I guess kind of set the stage you know, obviously the better you can set yourself up for the rest of the game. Right. So, you know, part of this is about how, you know, models have roles, right? Your opponent has brought models, presumably, uh, for a specific reason or, or you know, you know a, a wide range, or I shouldn't say a wide range, but a, possibly like a range of reasons, but basically to fulfill a role. Mm-hmm. in in the game and and they have a sense of how they thought they were going to use the model and hopefully hopefully you're able to prevent them and it, excuse me <laughs> hopefully you're able to prevent your opponent from using the model in that way mm-hmm. but possibly you're not able to now you mentioned that you you know you actually tend to play in this style quite a bit that you've hired a model and you know basically how you want to use it mm-hmm. If your opponent closes off that option, right? Like, suppose you hired a model to go, you know, because it's got high mobility to go grab a, a scheme marker or whatever, but as, or, you know, to go grab a symbol or something. But as it turns out, the opponent has closed out that section of the board. You know, maybe due to poor deployment, you, you close in your, your options or your opponent had a movement trick you didn't expect or, or, or whatever. Are you going to, like, how are you going to repurpose that model? to get some value out of it. Are you going to like, I guess, leave it on its mission in the hopes that in the future, it's going to be able to do what you want to do. Or are you going to like peel it off and like maybe go throw some, some, you know, 
min two hits on on something to get some value out of it yeah i guess surprise surprise it depends <laughs> um but even if i know that i've been you know even my plan has been foiled and i can no longer use them for the original purpose it how do i say this like even just the potential like remaining threat can still be enough to make that model worth it for me right Mm-hmm. you know sometimes it'll be like okay if everything goes perfectly this guy can still score me a point mm-hmm. and even though i know it's not likely the and this might be part of the mind game thing like the potential threat it proposes to my opponent might be worth it right because you know if it's in a really close game just the possibility that this could be um i guess the point that tips it in my favor will be enough to take that risk and I, I guess that, yeah, this is another part of threat assessment and risk assessment, right? Even if my plan has been foiled, if there's like a small percentage that'll still work, mm-hmm. if that really is still my best chance at winning the game, you know, of course I'm going to take it. Even if it went from like, okay, like 90% to like 10%, if right. that's the point I need to win the game, like that's what I need to do. But, you know, there are other times where, it's obviously like I just did not account for enough things and this guy this model is now completely useless to me. And then you just kind of like throw it in to just try and confuse your opponent. <laughs> you know, you go in for like the or like my Tengu. It's like, all right, they're just going to go in and like smack things around for one damage. <laughs> so I guess kind of as a related question, you know, what do you do if like you have misjudged a threat, like a model is actually more effective than you thought it was, or, you know, you thought it was a mm-hmm. scoring threat. Like, oh, you know, you, you know, Silurids are highly mobile, you know, they have stealth and butterfly jump, you know, they're great schemers, but you kind of forgot just how effective it could be for Zoraida to see through them and, you know, obey into your backfield or whatever. Mm-hmm. With full allowances for the fact that it's obviously contextual on what's going on in the game. Right. What, you know, what can you do to kind of address those sorts of situations? I guess at that point, you know, it's always, it's just going to be about damage control. Like how many points are you going to lose there? How many points do you still need to win? I guess like a lot of the times it might be that you just shift into hard denial mode, just hoping you can even eke out a tie, right? Mm -hmm. And I think like one thing that sounds simple, but I've been forcing myself to do more and more is just at the beginning of every turn, I'm going to just re-review like the strat pool the scheme pool and i guess try to focus my mind because a lot of the times it's really easy for me to get way too involved in like how my plan fell apart and how now all of a sudden the ciliarid is just like destroying my entire army (laughs) It, it can be that you get to the point where you're trying to contain this so much that you overreact that you just really threw away a point you had on the board and you know any point i guess you know that you fail to score is you're not really thinking about the pressure you're putting on your opponent as well, right? Mm-hmm. There have been like so many times, like after a game, I'll be talking to my opponent and they're saying, like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this model is running wild. I had no idea how to stop it. It was killing all these things. And it was like, I didn't plan for that at all, right? It's just <laughs> like, it went in, it killed something. Like, I didn't expect it to kill it. They didn't expect it to kill it. And all of a sudden, they like, all right, I need a rush to meet this threat. But really, that stopped them from scoring in other places on the map. They like seeded initiative in other areas of the map trying to deal with this threat that like it had already served its purpose for me it had, like done way more than i thought it was going to do uh-huh and now like they've just kind of you know like decreased their chances of winning even more because they overreacted to this threat right yeah i um so this actually isn't necessarily a, an overreaction on, on his part but uh you know i was playing a game against liam a long time ago mm-hmm. uh hey liam hope you're doing okay come come visit us again uh <laughs> he uh the Coast Guard moved him out of out of the area, but hopefully he can come back for a game sometime. But I mean, I, I recall I was playing a game against him, and and I moved one of my models off, like intentionally. This is this you know someone who he had a fair knowledge of 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 what my models could do. So you know when I when I moved in this way, I was hoping to pull some resources from you know from another area of the table. Mm-hmm. But I very much did not understand how much he wanted to bring this model down. So he spent <laughs> like way more than that model could handle. And that model ended up dying when I didn't expect that, that it would. And it's actually an open question whether or not I got enough 
for for losing that model. You know, I was able to score in 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 some other ways, mm-hmm. and and you know, Liam later had to kind of redeploy those models. But part of this this kind of threat assessment that we've been talking about is the story that you're telling your opponent about your models, and because you don't necessarily know how your opponent is going to interpret that story you can really be kind of surprised by what your <laughs> opponent uh, does in response mm-hmm. and to me like that's really like that's really a good thing about the game of of Malavo, where you know in in 40k i think it, you know not to like bash 40k or whatever in 40k there's a lot of gotchas right especially with the stratagems because there's so many of them so yeah, you might say like, oh, if you had comprehensive knowledge of everything, you would understand the threats. But I feel like it's just my opponent's got like a squad of these space marines with the melted guns or whatever, and I expect that they're gonna be able to like do X, but actually because of the strategy and because of the dice rolls, they did two X, and now now I'm just gonna lose the game. And I feel that that is like really quite different than in you know, the interaction that goes on in Malifaux where I think that like the relationship between the models and between the objectives uh, just leads to a lot more player agency. And it makes, it makes like, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the mind game aspect of, of threats, like a lot of the value in, in like this threat concept is your opponent having to consider what your models can do. Um, and then you can kind of like bluff that or get your opponent to think that you anticipate, you know, you intend to, Use the pale rider to go carry the football, but no, actually something else peeled the football off, and now the pale rider is plunging into the middle of 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 the crew and and you know doing its five ram trigger or whatever, right? Like just I think that that is a really good dynamic for the game, but it also can be just really rough until you you have a sense of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, <laughs> model knowledge, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's. It it sucks to have to come back to that so often because, I mean, look, I I, I get it, right? It's 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 not going to be everyone's thing to to read up on 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 the models, and they might have a perfect amount of fun playing Malifaux, even if they you know even if they don't really understand anything about the opponent's models. And if that's mm-hmm. true, you know, fantastic. Um, but for people who do want to kind of advance in their journey in Malifaux, which I think uh you know, it's kind of our target audience for this podcast, right? You know, we're, we're mid-tier players. We're speaking to beginning players or just like really casual players who can only play once in a while, but are interested in either improving or just like Malvo Media about improving. And like the number one suggestion we really can have is open the app and read some models uh, from time to time. Is there anything you've done, I guess, mid-game where... Uh, you know, you didn't have the model knowledge that really, you know, you wish you did. You found yourself on the back foot. Can can you remember any sort of like, you know, having to respond or um, like abilities that surprised you or like you, basically any any time when when you know, your plan or you know your lack of plan <laughs> basically didn't didn't match what was going on and you had to try something different. Um, that that sounds like it covers way too many games (laughs) i don't know how to succinctly answer that well okay so i can give you an example uh it actually goes back to uh like the vixen raspy game that we played Mm -hmm. when i plunged i plunged the vixen because i knew from vanessa i can get a a red joker on damage Mm -hmm. um so turn one right i was in raspy's face and she didn't have any ice pillars down so i managed to like land a hit for seven damage like right off the bat and you stoned away some i i forget how much but you know, the point is, I just plunged in, right? And then in subsequent turns, uh, I think I spent turn two and maybe even turn three with that Vic just kind of wailing on Raspy and not really making very much progress because you were able with Silent Ones and with Raspy to make enough pillars, maybe even to get some healing, right? So that was a situation where, you know, the plan that... So pregame, my plan wasn't to dive in on Raspy. Mm-hmm. But then I, I formulated this plan and I did it. So that was already one revision, right, to, to go in. But then when I found I wasn't making the progress that I expected to, the, you know, the next idea I had was to kind of uh, take the other Vic and, and wipe up some of these supporting models that you had on the side that, that was making it so I couldn't really make any progress. And 
you, you know, by, by saying this, like, this makes me sound like an idiot, right? Like, <laughs> you know, go kill the model that's stopping me from achieving my goals. This is not epic level strategy, right? I mean, you don't have to be Alexander the Great or Napoleon or something in order, in order to think these things up. But I, I think the reason I'm mentioning it is because oftentimes it's, it's easy to fall into that dynamic where, oh, you know, just one more attack and I can get through, or, you know, it's easy to think I'm making some progress here. That's good enough. But reality, is it good enough? You have your stupid horror cats on the other side of the board trying to pick up markers or whatever, right? So, you know, maybe I do need another attack. And so even if you don't really have model knowledge, just by game progress, you might be able to say, look, I'm behind, I need to shake things up, or I'm even and I need to shake things up, or maybe even I'm ahead right now, but I can see trends in the game that I don't like. What can I do to change that? What assets do I have available to me to make that happen? And what assets does my opponent have either to stop me or to progress in their own goals enough to to completely negate any progress I might make? And that really, I think, is the heart of this idea of thinking about like, what is the threat? What are the threats you have? And what are the threats your opponents have? And oftentimes I feel like once the game starts, you know, the brain like goes into like fight or flight mode. And I, a lot of people might be surprised just how beneficial it can be to make these sort of like rudimentary, because like I said, it's not profound strategy, but just like rudimentary re-examinations of the game at these various points. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like there's been a lot of times like I'll finish up the game, I'll take a step back, and it's like, what the fuck was I trying to do? Like turn two on, like <laughs> you know, I'll look at him like, oh right, like I'm actually supposed to try and like I have some schemes I could have been trying to score. Like there's a whole strategy, but yeah, I agree. Like it's kind of surprising how easy it is to just get caught up in doing something that no longer really has any value. Cause mm-hmm. now that you mentioned, I remember that Bix game and I was just like, I was just making pillars. Cause like, all right, it's better for me to make pillars and just burn them with ice shield than to actually bother preventing damage from you. <laughs> and then like every turn, you're just trying to cut down ice pillars faster than I could make them pretty much. Right. <laughs> and then eventually, like I think at the end of turn three, it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to walk away and put down the scheme marker and score a point. I'm like, Oh no, my plan. <laughs> And then all of a sudden you were, you had like an almost unbeatable point lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One other thing that, you know, kind of occurs to me is sometimes I'll get into a game where I had an actual plan for a model and that plan contrasts with my play style. So like, you know, I have a plan where <laughs> it's like an alpha strike model, but I'm not brave enough to pull the trigger or, you know, it's like, it's like a huckster or something similar with like a lot of movement where I can get all the way across the board, but. I'm not sure I can do that safely. And I haven't really like thought that out. So even though, even if the mechanics are sound, the way I want to play the game is not really going to jive with like, not only what the model is supposed to do, but also why I brought the model. Like when I hired it in, I'm like, yes, this is going to be awesome. And then later it's like, eh, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess as like a final note. Um, I know we we're talking about it, but yeah, even if you don't have like great model knowledge, because I mean, I, I be- we benefit from just playing in our local meta, so we're not really playing like every single model in the game. Mm-hmm. Knowing your crews really well, but then sometimes if something isn't jiving, it really could just be the play style of your crew doesn't match like what you want to achieve or how you play, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I started, I was playing Nelly, I was playing these scheming crews. I'm like, I'm going to be the smartest motherfucker in this entire game. I'm going <laughs> to be able to like outmaneuver all my opponents. And even in games where I did manage to scrape by to win, it was generally because somehow my plan to like kill things with journalists like magically materialized <laughs> and not because I was playing journalists. Like I was playing the journalist keyword well. It was just I managed to like scrape by playing them as an offensive crew. Uh Uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. So I guess as a closing thought, I want to piggyback about how you were mentioning, um, you know, knowing your own crew really well. This could be a shortcut, like for people who don't have the time or, you know, know, the commitment level or the interest or whatever to really expand on on model knowledge very much. If you become well-versed in your own models, 
you know, if, if you stick to one crew or, you know, a small group of crews and, and you know, it's sort of a, a small collection of models and you really get to know them. Sure, you're not going to you're not going to be able really to assess what opponents models do very well, but having that familiarity with your own models and, and sort of what they can do and what they're weak against, you know, might be the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, for sure. You know, like if you know really well what your crew can do and the potential, it'd be a lot easier to know when you have to switch up their role in the game. Especially, you know, when you're up against a new model, it's like, oh shit, I didn't know they could do that. Yeah, I uh I I find it like it's it's kind of surprising to me how impactful a single model can be in Malifaux. Because you would think, hey, you know, 50 stones, you got like eight models, the board is pretty big, right? Like three by three. How is this one model with its like one aura totally destroying my whole crew? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that, that can happen. And if you know your own crew really well, maybe when you started, you didn't know you were going to find yourself in this problem. But once you find yourself there, if you have that knowledge with your crew, you're probably going to be able to, to dig out some sort of response because hard counters are very rare in Malifaux. I, I don't want to say they don't exist at all, but you usually have options, even if it's just, okay, well, you know what? I'm not going to play around this model. I'm going to go over here. You usually have options. Um, yeah, for sure. Definitely agree. Well, speaking of options, I know that there's a lot of options out there with podcasts, and we appreciate you listening to ours. Of course, they're not mutually exclusive. If you listen to ours, we definitely uh, encourage you to listen to anyone else's. And if you listen to anyone else's and you've given ours a try, you know we'd love it if you listen to a few more episodes of ours. I promise you... Colgan doesn't really get any better, but he doesn't get any worse. So if you endured this episode, you should be fine. Gotten so much meaner. <laughs> it's because Jim's not here to restrain me right now. He hasn't been here in forever. <laughs> Are you just gonna go back to the beginning when Jim was on the podcast and you weren't this mean to me? <laughs> Jim, well, you know, we did the Festivus episode, which helped restrain me for a little while. <laughs> you know, now the holiday season is over. It's like two weeks out of the year. <laughs> we uh we play just in one small corner here in Los Angeles, but we want to be part of the wider Malfo community. You know, that's why we do this podcast. And so any feedback is really appreciated. We just we love to hear what people think what we say. We love to hear about episode ideas and you know, we we've received some and you know, we we very much appreciate that. Uh, we have, you know, all the standard accoutrements. We have Facebook and Discord and Twitter and weird place and whatever else so there's plenty of ways to reach us um we also have a paypal and a patreon if you'd like to support the channel in that way it'd be really appreciated and shout out to everyone who has and who is and who maybe will be and i think with that i'm just gonna say good night night everyone <laughs>